Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Glad that you're here on this incredible day of the year. Um, I need your help a little bit before we even jump in. Uh, We had a really deep, profound uh, theological debate last night at my house with my daughter, who's seven years old, so she knows everything. And um, (laughs) so the, the debate went down to the gender of the Easter bunny. All right, and so we're laying out our cases. Um, you know, she believes that the Easter Bunny is a female, and I, I believe, because I know I'm right, that the Easter Bunny is a male. And um, and so we were going back and forth. So, show of hands, the Easter Bunny is a female. Let me see you boldly commit to that. All right, eight of you are wrong. All right. <sighs> Wonderful. So let me see the hands that think and know the Easter Bunny is a boy. Awesome. So you all know the Easter Bunny is a boy, right? And so just to, to be clear, here's my, here's my like evidence because in our household, you don't just make assertions. You have to have some backups to your claims. My claim, my backup is historical evidence and historical documentation, specifically the one that goes, here comes Peter Cottontail hopping down the bunny trail, hippity hoppity, right? That whole poem song that you grew up probably hearing refers to the Easter bunny as a he multiple times a year. And and so I guess this was kind of on her mind in our debate because she was praying last night that the Easter bunny, you know, she would, would come and leave something to our house this morning. But when you take a step back, I'm like, okay, my daughter just prayed that the Easter bunny would come to our house tonight. Essentially, a male bunny the size of me laying eggs is going to break into my house tonight while I'm sleeping and leave a gift. My daughter is asking for God to bring a breaking and entering into my household. I'm like, how jacked up is that? But she just thinks it's normal. I think that the the funny reality of Easter is that it's really possible, not just for a seven-year-old or even a 70-year-old, but everyone in between, to miss the greatest kind of lead of the story. In journalism, it's called burying the lead. The idea that the, the headline of the story has been kind of buried down. If you have a, a teenager in your household, for example, and the Globe released an article on Monday saying that uh, a new law kicked into effect that all state teachers have to travel to Boston on Thursday of this week for an all-day training, that would be an example of burying the lead because your teenager would say, no, the lead is there is no school on Thursday because all the teachers are having to be trained. That's what I mean when I say bury the lead in Easter. That Easter is so much more than some criminal bunny activity, breaking into your house, laying eggs, whatever's up with that. It's that there's something greater, something stronger in the Easter story that it's worth camping out in. And over the course of our next 30 minutes, I want to walk through the 
grander storyline of and backdrop of Easter so that you and I can connect with it, not as 21st century readers, because the danger is even in reading the Easter story, the lead can be buried for us too, just reading it. Because Luke, the, the gospel writer that we're going to read this morning, he's writing this letter as part of this two-volume research project um, to a first-century audience. And this is a really important thing to recognize because first-century audiences knew things that 21st-century audiences don't. First-century audiences have words in their mind that 21st-century audiences don't. My seven-year-old has no clue, no clue what things like cassette tapes are or CDs. She, she doesn't know that there used to be a time where you watched whatever happened to be on television and you had no control over any of that and that you timed your food and your bladder with commercials. She doesn't even know there are commercials because of things like Netflix and apps. And, and so I want us to step into this storyline and I'm going to fill in some blanks and help bridge the 21st to the 1st so that we read this story not missing the lead that would have been very obvious to the first century readers. As Jason referenced earlier, there's an app that we've created for you. already has the, the scripture passages from today preloaded for you. Um, I'm going to be in Luke chapter 23. And if you don't have, or if you're still downloading the app, it'll also be on the screens surrounding me. Luke 23, beginning with verse 32, it says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, him being Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. This is one of those first moments where the first century audience would have instantly had so much more present than a 21st century audience. One of the things that's um, kind of caught the attention of modern scholars, not so much ancient scholars, but more modern, is how the four gospel writers, the four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how they essentially take crucifixion and they make it a word. They're kind of mystified. In fact, when you read commentaries and uh, the writings around this passage, what you always see is a lot of people who are really smart wrestling with this passage, and they're like, why, why do all the writers just say the word crucified and move on? And it's because in the first century, you didn't have to describe crucifixion. You didn't have to, to unpack what that was. You didn't have to, to, to describe the details because everyone knew the details. It was just assumed that the audience knew when they read that sentence what was on the back of that word. And I want to kind of help you understand that word because I think the challenge with us in the 21st century is we've sanitized the word. We wear the cross around our neck as jewelry or a charm on a bracelet or it's kind of stamped on top of churches or um, even on tattoos or gravestones. And we can miss how truly brutal it was. It's not sanitary. It would be like if you hopped in a time machine and stepped into the French Revolution where they were chopping off heads every single day and you walk up to someone in the French Revolution and you're like, look at my new guillotine necklace. Do you like my guillotine? It's awesome. They're like, why are you wearing a guillotine around your neck? Don't you realize people are losing their heads because of that thing? 
I mean, this was the Romans. This was the Roman Empire's way of controlling and squashing revolutions. The major road going into Rome in 71 BC was lined with 6,000 people that were crucified. The road from Capula to Rome is about 132 miles long, which averages out to every 116 feet there was someone crucified. Okay. The Romans used crucifixion to make a point. If you're thinking about rebelling, don't. And so crucifixion was a common and brutal tactic that the Roman Empire used to control and to suppress people. And they loved to make a point through public executions with it. And this is what is going on with the backdrop of Jesus. He's involved in this nasty cultural phenomenon known as crucifixion. But Jesus isn't just involved in this phenomenon. He's actually the center of it. The brutality that Jesus experiences is taken a notch above what other People typically, when they typically crucified you, you, you weren't really beaten too much prior. The average person crucified would take about eight to ten days to die. They would leave you on the side of the road. That's the 6,000. They were just left there for a week plus. Jesus is beaten brutally. They actually employ another method. It's like the Romans didn't invent brutality. They just perfected it. If you'd opened up their handbook, there was a chapter on crucifixion, but there was another chapter on scourging which is um, one of the things that happened to Jesus prior to being crucified. Scourging, this is how good they were. They would say they'd learned through trial and error and experimentation, I guess it was like scientific method, that 40 lashes killed people, so they beat people 40 minus 1. They're like, hey, we've learned if you hit them 40 times with the, the whip, that they was called the cat of nine tails, it's this leather, multi-leather strips with bones and glass, um, kind of embedded into the leather so it would rip a lot of the flesh, and two guys would take turns hitting um, the person chained to the, to the log while they were being publicly beaten. Um, they'd learned 40 kills, 39, takes them to the edge of death without taking them out. That's where we want to leave them. And so they employed, when you see the word scourge, um, scourging or flogging was 40 minus 1. And it would pretty much leave you completely, your back would be devastated. And I, I don't want to be too gruesome because um, it's a really intense experience. But you see bone by the time they're finished. You don't bleed to death through scourging because there's not that many blood vessels on your back. And so they beat you. And around 27th lash, you actually pass out. But that's why they change you to a wooden log, because they want to make sure when you pass out, they can still beat you. So they beat you the additional 12 times. I mean, this is scourging. Then, after that, Jesus was kind of publicly humiliated multiple times in different trials. And they place upon his back the crossbeam. The cross was not a T-shape that you would carry. You would typically have the crossbeam that weighed over 50 pounds. And you would have to carry it uphill to the place outside the city where you were crucified. That was the method. Jesus, we know, was so weak from his beating that he could not physically carry the 50-pound cross. And so someone was pulled out of the crowd and forced to carry it for him. And this has ultimately led to the top of the hill. He's tied to the wooden beams. Nails are driven through his arms, and his legs are crossed, and a nail is driven through his ankle straight through. Now, this is a really important piece because I told you the Romans perfected punishment and pain. So have you ever had your funny bone, which is like the worst branding of ever. It's not the funny. If you've ever hit in your funny bone, you felt pain and fire, right? 
Well, the funny bone is part of a nerve. It's one of the central nerves that runs through your arms. Um, you also have one of those central major kind of nerve, nerve roadways in your legs, too. You don't feel it, it's too deep, but you could have a funny knee, too, if you were ever kind of hit the right way. And the Romans had learned that's where you want to put the nail because it, it intensifies the agony. So you would be bound to a cross, nails driven in, and any time you moved, it felt like fire coursed through your body. And they would take you and pull you up, and you would drop into the hole in the ground, and the cross would be formed. And this is what's going on in that first sentence. Now, people think that you bleed to death on the cross. You don't bleed to death. The Romans would miss blood vessels when they plowed through your nerves because they wanted you to excruciatingly, agonizingly kind of lament life without dying. They were, it was an evil, wicked way of killing a human being. And the way that you typically would die on a cross is you would suffocate to death. Because the way they would suspend you, your diaphragm could not bring in air to your lungs. Your lungs can't, your lungs require your diaphragm to bring air in. And so your body down here could not activate your diaphragm muscle. And so you would have to extend your body up the cross to get your diaphragm in a place where you could get air in. That's what you had to do every single time to take one breath. Your back is brutally exposed, splintered wood every time you bounce up the back of it and fire courses through your entire body. That's every single breath. And why people would die is the pain of life would get so strong, they would choose to die. Because they just didn't have the strength to bounce back up the cross to breathe again. That's a sentence. But see, everything I just explained to you in about six minutes went through the mind of the reader when they read that sentence. They have a picture of Jesus that's far deeper, the picture of deeper, a picture of pain and agony that's far wider than just reading that sentence separated in the 21st century. But it keeps on going that they crucify him and then the criminals are on his left and right. And it says as he bounces and the, the shock of fire radiates through his body, remember every breath counts, he uses those breaths to say this word, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then it says they divided up his clothes by casting lots because typically the, if you were the executor, uh, like when you went in for a Roman execution um, job offering, they would be like, the pay, eh, but the perks are wonderful. Anyone you crucify, you get to keep the clothing. And so that's what they do. They would strip the person down almost naked and they would gamble over who gets to keep the clothes because that was the perk of being an executor in the Roman government. Great pay structure right there. And, um, and so... This is why you see them dividing his clothes. And then it says, the people stood watching and the rulers sneered at them. This was a public thing. It says, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, which was kind of the cheap brown bag um, of the day. And it says, if you're the king of Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of Jews, one of the criminals. And so when it says that this is written above his head, it's important to realize that this is ultimately what crucifixion was for. Remember, the whole journey around crucifixion was it was the Roman government controlling the people. And so no person was ever crucified without a public placard displayed above it. 
They wanted people to know as you stood in the presence, as you lashed out and you ridiculed and you picked on and you spit on these people, that ultimately crucifixion was a public display of guilt. That's what, that's what it was. It, it was a Roman government com- communicating to the surrounding people, this person's guilty and here's why. And this idea of guilt is a really interesting thing. They, Roman government employed it to control a people. But guilt isn't something that was common only in the first century. Guilt is something that we all experience. It's a 21st century thing too. It's the oldest theme in literature. In fact, every single great writer eventually comes on to this theme of guilt because it is the central experience, the central unifying experience to be human on planet Earth throughout humanity's history. It's one of those things that's inherent in our species. It's not present in any other species. No other animal species feels guilt. Now, I recognize that there are some of you that instantly popped up this example, and you're like, but what about my dog? When I walk in from being gone all day, and he's on the couch, and he's not supposed to me, what I see is clearly guilt, right? Or when my trash bag has been ripped all open in and it's kind of sprawled through the kitchen or there's little stains left around the house. What I see when I say their name is guilt. Now, and I would argue that that's not guilt. That's you personifying. You're projecting your emotional, what you would feel onto the animal. What you're really seeing happen with that animal is the clear violation. That animal knows it has violated the pack rules. You are the alpha. It has broken your pack rule, not getting on the couch, not breaking up the trash bag, and it knows that in its kind of societal structures that to violate the pack rules is a bad thing, and it, it's going to potentially lead to punishment. So it's not an issue of guilt. It's an issue of the alpha approaching a beta, which is vastly different than what we experience as Humans. I've never, ever walked by in a zoo a group of animals having a guilt session. Never walked by a black widow sitting there being like, you know, Stacy, I really, you know, I think about Marv was probably a good guy. I didn't have to eat him. It kind of haunts me. I, I can still feel him in my belly. You know, like, never seen a black widow express guilt over eating her mate. Never walk through gorillas or peacocks or giraffes unpacking their childhood trauma and experiencing the guilt of eating a little bit more food that day than the others. Because it's inherent to us. And it's not just, it's not even something that you have to teach humans. It's just like we know it. Right? I I remember Jenny and I were sitting on the couch one afternoon. Ella was about three. We're sitting there, we're talking, and Ella's door opens. And she'd gone in there because we said, hey, sweetie, she, was, she likes snack, okay? She's like a huge snacker. Um, child loves snack time. And it's like all time is snack time. And, um, and so we were like, Ellie, you can't have any more fruit snacks. So she goes in her room. And we're sitting there talking, and the door opens, and a blanketed figure begins to float through our living room, bouncing off of things, moving towards the general vicinity of the kitchen. We see the blanketed figure go into the kitchen. We hear the pantry door open. We hear rustling. The pantry door closes, and this carpeted, like, clothed, blanketed figure bounces back to the room, and the door closes. And we're sitting there, like, laughing and also realizing, okay, we have to be parents in this moment because what we just clearly witnessed is sneakery, and she thinks no one saw it. (laughs) 
I'm like, I, 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 we gotta, we gotta deal with this. Like, she thinks she got away with it. She's like, he, 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 underneath that blanket. So you walk up and you pull that blanket, and instantly what flashes over her face is the experience we call guilt. I didn't have to teach her. I didn't have to say, Ella, now after you sneak into the pantry, steal fruit snacks, and go to your bedroom, I want you to feel guilt. She felt it. All we did was give a name to what she was already experiencing on the inside. And it is not an alpha beta experience. It's not societal pack rules because if you ask my three or my seven-year-old, she thinks she is the alpha in our house. So it's not an alpha thing. It's a guilt thing. And guilt is something that all of us have experienced. It's something that all of us understand the pain of regret and being haunted by our past that still kind of lurks and lingers in our present, holding us back from our future. We all know what that's like. And guilt is an indicator light. The Romans used guilt, flashed above the head of Jesus on that sign to communicate something about guilt. But they missed it. And what happens in that moment is there's a conversation that plays out between the two thieves. There are two thieves that are clustered around Jesus. We see that one of them, in verse 39, watching others ridicule Jesus, says one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults, hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. So you have these two criminals. And I think in these two criminals, you have a conversation that, that emerges, that shows us the two ways that we respond to guilt. These two perfectly embody the human's tendency, the, the human condition, and how we typically deal with guilt. The first is the thief who's hurling insults. He demonstrates the, the primary method of avoidance. He doesn't want to acknowledge or see his own guilt. He, in fact, kind of glosses over that really well and is saying, hey, well, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, how about you get down? And oh, by the way, when you get down, how about you take me too? Don't forget a brother when you climb off, right? And the thief on the first cross, he's not sad or feeling bad of what he's done wrong. If there's any remorse or regret, it's in the fact that he got caught doing it which is different than feeling bad because you did it, right? Feeling bad because you got caught is not the same thing as feeling bad because you did it. And as a parent, I know I, I'd prefer the second one, the feeling bad because you did it. The feeling bad because you got caught is a terrifying thing to see. And this is what the first thief is doing. And not only does there a tendency to want to kind of skip over it and avoid it. It also causes you to want to avoid the people that you've wronged. There's this thing about guilt that's really interesting is it always involves someone. Guilt is always tied to wronging someone. I saw this play out, this tension, almost this war within my little daughter's heart when you pull that blanket off her face and she's caught like some rodent holding a fruit bag snack. There's on one flash, I see a desire to run away from us because she wants to avoid us. Because when you've wronged someone, guilt makes you want to run away from the one that you've wronged. And I see in the other flash, a desire to run to and to be comforted because guilt is so painful. 
And that tension, that war comes to, to a head, and I see it in the heart and the mind of a little three-year-old, the simultaneous competing, conflicting experience of wanting to run from the one that you've wronged and also wanting to reconcile with that one too. And when you try to avoid guilt, you run away. And you run away from reconciliation too. The fights that we have with each other, those moments when we've wronged one another, the very urge to run away from the person is an urge we should fight because healthy relationships have to be built on constant reconciliation. And you have to run to that person. Guilt was given to us as an indicator light. It was meant to teach us something. But the challenge we have with guilt is that guilt gives two gifts when it comes. It brings the gifts of consequence because every choice has an action. And it brings with it a sense of condemnation. Consequence and condemnation are the two gifts that guilt gives. And yet, in the midst of all that, there's another thief who's watching. He's watched Jesus suffer. He's watched Jesus struggle. He's watched Jesus get breaths, bounce up a cross. And instead of lashing back, he forgives. I don't know about you, but stress never brings out my best parts. When I'm stressed, I am never the best version of me. I'm, I'm embarrassed if people see me in my stress state. And there is no other, there is no greater stress state than being crucified on the cross. And this thief is watching Jesus and the best of him. And he's like, that's not, that's not normal. Crucified people don't forgive the people who are spitting on them, ridiculing them. And this thief starts to recognize something, and this thief chooses a different path. He doesn't avoid guilt. He doesn't try to shift the standards. Because the first thief recognized, well, Jesus is part of the crew. He's up here with us. And he just had did the men- mental algebra of fixing everything so that Jesus and him are about the same. Which is something we also do, right, as humans. When I sit down with people and we get around this question around how good is good enough, we always adjust our standards. There's always, like, it's always the same thing, in fact. It's always Mother Teresa, like, on the spectrum we create. She's always over here. Like, Mother Teresa's, like, there. And then Hitler, for whatever reasons, Hitler's always the worst person. He's over there. It's just this coming out. We pick Mother Teresa and Hitler, and we put them on a spectrum, and then we draw a line for the answer of how good is good enough. Here's my line. And what typically happens is most people step here. They're like, I'm not Mother Teresa, but I sure ain't Hitler. And so if this is the line, I'm comfortably bumping up against it, but I'm on this side. And this is exactly how this first thief has built his little world. Jesus and him are in the same place. And this other thief, though, he's watching it, and he recognizes he's on this side. He's like, don't you have a clue? Like, we deserve what we're getting today. He's innocent. He's actually innocent. We are guilty. We deserve it. The second thief acknowledges and accepts his guilt. He owns up to it. He accepts responsibility for it, which is critical. In our personal lives, in, the, in our interactions with people, if you can't own the wrong that you've done, that's wrong. 
It does not lead to reconciliation. No one, no couples go to happy places with and buts or but and. Well, I know I did this, but, you know, you did that. No, you have to own it, accept it, acknowledge the wrong in it. Take responsibility for it. This is what this thief does. He accepts responsibility for the wrong that he did. He recognizes there are consequences, and those consequences are just worthy. But there's a second thing this thief does, which is slightly buried underneath the text. Again, it's one of these first century things that's really difficult for a 21st century person to see it. We just read over it. In fact, the thief says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The criminal, when he says the word, remember me, Luke writes this letter, quotes him in Greek. Now, growing up, the common Bible being circulated, the Old Testament, which would have been essentially the Jewish scriptures of the day, there was a group of those scriptures circulated in mass, and it was written in Greek. The words that Luke records this thief saying is the phrase, remember me, that in the, the Septuagint, which is the, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, or the Jewish scriptures, the phrase, remember me, is primarily used when someone was speaking to God. Luke picks these two words to communicate what's actually happening in this perspective of the thief on the cross. The thief sees more than a crucified criminal. He sees a coming king, which is why he says to Jesus this very strange statement, remember me when you come into your kingdom. People being strapped into an electric chair do not make plans for next week. And yet this is exactly what's happening. Why? Because this thief looks at Jesus and he sees more than a crucified criminal. He sees the king. He sees something glorious. He's watched it through his interactions. He's watched it through his reactions. He's watched it in how he's given grace. And Jesus' response to him says, I see that you see me. When he says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, don't worry, this isn't the end. This is just the means to a better end. And today, you'll end up there with me because of what I'm doing here on the cross. Powerful, moving words that transforms that thief's life and that thief's story forever and ever. He understood who God was and the fact that it was God himself on that cross dying beside him and the words remember me point us to that in uh, january 1975 uh this really momentous occasion happened in music history it's probably not an occasion that most of us are aware of it occurred in cologne germany it was centered around this man named keith jarrett Keith Jarrett is considered to be one of the greatest um, jazz pianists. Um, this album here is the live recording. And Keith Jarrett was on a European tour. He had been in Switzerland, Zurich, right before, and had driven on his way 
to Cologne. The, he arrived at Cologne, and the youngest concert promoter in all of Europe was responsible for the concert that night. She was 17 years old. She had one job. Her one job was to get the one piano that Keith Jarrett required for all of his improv improvisational shows. It was um, this beautiful imperial concert piano that was about $250,000. It was a Bossendorf. And this incredible machine was his one request. He arrives after driving through most of the night. His back is in excruciating pain. He's wearing a brace. Um, he arrives at the concert hall and he discovers as he sits down to the piano to begin to turn it on that something is not right. He had requested this one specific piano and when he begins to play, something's not right. It sounds off. You see, she had gotten the wrong piano. She had had the workers grab the practice piano that was out of tune. Its pedals didn't work. And the upper and the lower registry were shot. So he had a small window, a small narrow piece of the piano from here to here that did work. Oh, and to top it off, the black keys, they weren't working either. The concert was sold out. And he looks at her and he says, I want you to remember tonight. Never forget what I'm about to do for you. He sits down. And he begins to improv what you hear right now. This broken, battered, damaged piano begins to come alive. The sounds begin to fill this concert hall. And people's mouths are wide open. The beauty of the master having to stand up because you, you can hear him throughout the recording. He'll, you'll hear him go, ah, oh, or ah, oh, and it was the cry of pain because his back was, was completely out and it required him to hit the keys so hard that he's sitting there nailing the keyboard, standing up, and his grunts can be picked up by the microphone. And yet, what Keith Jarrett records, what you're hearing today, we hold in this record, and it is the single greatest selling solo jazz album of all time. It is the greatest piano album of all time. All of it produced and recorded from a broken, damaged piano. And the the lead of Easter is that God is still able as the master to step into our broken lives and to produce a masterpiece through our lives. That the wonder of Easter is what that man saw on faith on Friday. We celebrate today on a Sunday 
Because Jesus was tucked into a grave. And yet three days later, the master walked out of the grave. Coming and carrying with him the chains that he had broken, the power that he had brought, guilt, shame, regret, no longer had control over our lives. He had defeated those things. There may still be consequences, but there is no more condemnation for guilt and for shame. There is no more barrier between God and man. He had destroyed it. And why I love the Keith Jarrett album is it's just an acoustic reminder of what God is able to do to a human heart that looks at Jesus the way that that thief looked that day when he said, remember me. This simple, humble cry to God Almighty to say, I see you. You see me for who I really am. Forgive me. I accept it, I own it, I recognize the guilt in my life. You're perfect, I'm not. And that the lead of Easter is God is still taking the imperfect and doing amazing, beautiful things. That it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter where you've come from, you've walked into this room or you're listening online and he is not done with you. He is still able to take your guilty record and to turn it into something extraordinary. You don't need me. I don't have some special access to God that you don't have. He that day through the cross tore down all dividing barriers and walls. He stepped into your world. He never expected you could step into his. He understood something crucial and critical that we all intuitively get. In fact, if I came to you before you left and said, hey, I got word from a plumber that a small line in your toilet line broke and it's mixing with your faucet. Your question to me would not be, how big was the hole? You wouldn't ask how much toilet water is getting into my drinking water because you recognize any imperfection taints the perfect and that what that thief recognized that day was that in his imperfection that perfect was standing right there with him being crucified for him and that the good news of easter is that because of that day this day can be different for you the regret that you have, the guilt that you carry, the shame that still haunts you, the past that's still present in your present doesn't have to be here anymore. Jesus broke the chains. The ones you couldn't, the ones I couldn't, he did. And that you can experience that life. You can experience that grace. You can experience that freedom that he purchased that day on the cross. And I get it. I know it sounds way too easy. I know maybe even how you grew up that you were taught you got to work for it. You got to earn it. You got to jump through the hoops and do all the rules and hit all the right buttons. But yet many of us use Amazon. And on Amazon, there's this convenient little one button payment. You click that and that's all you do. Just click it. And it's magic happens. Why? Because Amazon did all the work. So you didn't have to. You just click. Jesus did all the work. You just have to say, remember me. I own it. I acknowledge it. 
and I accept what I should have gotten. And I'm humbled by the fact that you give grace where there should have been guilt. And that grace is offered to all of us today. And I would hate for you to miss that opportunity. If you're here today and you've been carrying this load and this weight of guilt and shame and regret, today's the day to take it and drop it, to let go. You're not guilty anymore. There is no more condemnation for you. What you have done in your past doesn't have to define you anymore in your present or your future. And for those who are here, maybe aren't in that place, I would encourage you to lean in. If, if, if anything, just explore who Jesus is. Don't flippantly discard him like that second thief who didn't want to acknowledge or even see. But to lean in this one day of the year and to look and to ask some of those questions. If I'm so confident that Jesus and this whole Christian thing isn't real, then Why? Why are you confident? And do yourself a favor. Have a little bit more than because that's how I grew up. Or because that's what I feel. Be like the Causey household. Present your evidence for why it's not worth looking into. And if you honestly desire to dialogue, to debate, to walk through it, to watch videos, to read books, I'd love to step into that journey with you. Not to be pushy, but to come alongside of you and say, here's, here's some books I've read. Here's some, some things that I've processed through because I've been in your shoes. 18 years ago, I sat in these chairs, not these specific ones, but one like these, and came to terms with I'd, what I'd been wrestling with around faith and life and who Jesus really was. And I'd love to step in that journey with you and just walk with you as you work through it yourself. And if there's any way we can pray for you any way that we can step into your journey, we would count it an honor at Encounter Church. We just didn't want you to leave here today missing the lead of Easter, that you can be free, that you no longer have to be enslaved and entrapped by the things that you've done, that you can be set free from guilt because of what Jesus did that day on the cross. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you're exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.